Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome back from your weekends. Uh, Welcome to our show. The show today is going to be in two parts. And in the second part, I'm not going to have a guest. Uh, I'm going to do open phones. I'll give out the phone number. And I'm interested to know, I I often think that people just live through the news and experience the news and read and listen to the news. They sometimes get a better picture of what's going on, at least at a predictive level, than the so-called experts, the pundits who opine on Sunday morning uh, television. There's a researcher named Phil Tetlock who's actually kind of documented this. So I'm going to ask you to predict what state America will be in, particularly impeachment-wise, by, say, January 1st or March 1st. I'd like to know what you think is going to happen. All right. So, But right now, we're going to talk about uh, um, a situation that has occupied everybody's attention. Uh, It's um, a horrifying thing to watch unfold on the news. And I also feel that there is kind of a fog of war already where we don't entirely understand everything that we're seeing. So hopefully Robin Wright is going to help us, a correspondent for The New Yorker, the author of seven books on the Mideast, most uh, recently, Rock the Kasbah, Rage and Rebellion Across the Islamic World. She's a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and uh, the Woodrow Wilson Center. Welcome to our show. Great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions that are maybe going to seem a little simplistic at first, but I've I've read a lot about this, and I'm still not 100% sure that I understand it at all. So maybe we could just begin with the decision of uh, Erdogan's-led Turkey to go into this area. This is something that Erdogan apparently has wanted to do for quite some time. Why is that important to him? Why did he want to do that? President Erdogan has long sought to create a buffer zone inside Syria to push back the Kurdish militia that controls that area. The Kurds are a big challenge for many Middle East governments, uh, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran particularly, because they are such large minorities, the largest one in Turkey, one of the, uh, it accounts for a third of the population in Iraq, a very large minority in Iran. And in Syria, during the eight years of the civil war, the Kurds have controlled a third of the country. And the Kurds are the largest minority in the world without a state. They were promised a state as the Middle East was reconfigured after World War I, but then the world turned around and basically abandoned them. And so they've been divided among peoples. And they are, in many ways, diverse Kurdish societies. They even speak different dialects. They don't always agree politically. They range the full gamut. But to Erdogan, the Kurds, as the largest minority in Turkey, represent a threat. And it is a very large voting bloc. But there is also a wing of the Kurds who have been engaged in a separatist movement. They want either autonomy or separation separation possibly into their own Kurdish state. And so Erdogan has sought to minimize or distance the Kurdish challenge to him politically and to Turkey physically by pushing this buffer zone, pushing back Syrian Kurds 30 kilometers, 20, a little less than 20 miles 
across the whole border between Syria and Turkey. Now, one of the reasons that uh, aggression towards the Kurds would be a little uh, unwelcome in other parts of the world, ranging from usually the United States to NATO to lots of other uh, groups that would look at this situation would be that these Kurds, uh, one of the things that they have done is constitute the force that has done the bulk of the fighting against ISIS, as I understand it. So that would be a reason, even if there were no other reasons, to not favor unilateral aggression against uh, some group. There's a stake here, right, that the fight against ISIS has been waged largely by this group of people. Totally, by the Kurds. This is one of the most interesting developments in U.S. relationships in the region. The United States tried for many years to find rebels inside Syria to challenge the rule of President Assad. He's one of the most brutal and brittle politically leaders in the region. Uh, the Civil War, his forces have killed now an estimated half million troops. Some people think it's genocide. He has tens of thousands in prison. He's dropped chemical weapons on his very own people, killing babies and um, targeting small children, uh, civilians, uh, old senior citizens. You know, he has no regard for others in his country. And and the Kurds, who make up about 10% of Syria, had become very important as all the other groups the U.S. tried to arm and train and so forth all failed. Well, we finally went to the Kurds to beat the emerging threat from ISIS, totally separate from the danger of the Assad regime, because there are many wars playing out in Syria. And so as ISIS evolved and began to take a huge chunk of Syria to create its caliphate in 2014, the U.S. looked for some somebody to help, and it turned to the Kurds. And it created one of the most interesting alliances the U.S. has ever had. The U.S. provided air power, along with support from 70 nations, including NATO, and the Kurds fought ISIS on the ground. And the Kurds lost 11,000 fighters, men and women. They have a very large uh, group of women fighters uh, over those five years. But in March, and I was there in March as it happened, the Kurds beat back ISIS, and they took back the last scrap of territory that ISIS held. The problem, of course, is that ISIS then evolved into an insurgency. It went underground. There are sleeper cells. And the U.S. estimates there are between still 20,000 to 30,000 ISIS fighters underground, waging an insurgency, launching car bomb attacks, uh, assassinations, all kinds of operations against the Kurds and our allies in Iraq. And so the U.S. presence, which we've, where we've offered intelligence on what's happening on the ground, what we have satellites in the air, we've provided air power to take out whether it's weapons depots that ISIS has run and so forth. Uh, we start, we provided strategic advice. We couldn't arm them, but we could help with um, armored personnel carriers, uniforms, things like that. So this was one of the most cost-effective military operations the U.S. has run against the most militant Islamist extremist group in the world. And the mission is far from complete. Right. But and now we're leaving. And yes. And so, I, you know, I just want to interject that some of this does remind me of 2003. You know, in 2003, um, at least a 
from what I could tell, um, Saddam Hussein had been degraded to the point of being more like the very powerful mayor of Baghdad than, you know, this incredibly big force uh, in, in the area. And as we we had sort of a um, um, an uncomfortable kind of stasis there, uh, and it seemed like our invasion destabilized everything, led to the rise of groups like ISIS. And, and it seems like that might be happening now, too. We had arrived at, you know, ISIS hadn't been completely 100% percent eliminated, but degraded to the point uh, of having much less of an impact. As you say, there are a lot of skirmishes and wars and stuff going on in, in parallel ways. But there was almost a sense, maybe not on the ground, but from a distance, that things were kind of leveling out a little bit until just now. I think the war in Iraq and what we're facing right now have very different dynamics. Uh, and, you know, one was a secular head of state. This is the other that we're dealing with ISIS, which is an extremist group that is, you know, when you look at what they've done to women, um, I mean, my God, the, the forcing women to wear niqab, stoning them to death if they had sex with men to whom they were not married, the burnings alive of Yazidi women, the enslavement of tens of thousands of captured people, the beheadings of American journalists and other foreigners. It just, you know, we're talking about very different issues here. And in many ways, this Saddam Hussein had represented the kind of leftover threats of the 20th century. ISIS represents the threat of the 21st century. Mm. And we were, we were actually winning. And it was stunning to me to see how effective this alliance we had created with the Kurds on the ground was. As I said, I saw it firsthand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was making a difference. And and to withdraw, you know, when you're, you've made such progress, and not only that, but there are strategic repercussions. Remember, the Kurds, because the Americans, as they look at it, abandoned them, have now turned to the Russians and the Syrian government. They mm-hmm. had been a counterforce to the regime of President Assad, another, you know, this evil man. And now they've been forced to turn to him to, to protect them against NATO. You know, it's, it's a strategic mess, to be honest with you. It's just a, just a, a thundering, unbelievable mess that's been created. I want to talk a little bit more about this mess, but um, as you reported, I think two weekends ago now was the time when President Trump, apparently in between rounds of golf, decided that he was sort of done with Syria. He just wasn't uh, he made his own personal decision that, that, that the U.S. involvement uh, there, particularly along that border, was just going to go away. Do we? Does he ever explain why? I guess his his rationale has been that he was tired of risking the lives and safety of uh, of American troops. Is, has there been any other reason cited for doing this? Well, there are a couple things at play. First of all, he campaigned long and hard on ending America's wars overseas and bringing Americans home. That's the first part of it. The second part is that Donald Trump looks at national security differently than other presidents. For most presidents, national security begins at your border and looks out at the world. How do you create, you know, how do you deal with the rest of the world? For Donald Trump, national security begins at the border and goes in, mm-hmm. which is reflected in the wall he's trying to create. So there are um, earlier presidents, be they Republicans or Democrats, have looked at how do you create alliances to make yourself safer, how do you join forces with whether it's NATO or um, 
you know, other political trade or, or environmental groups even, um, the United Nations, how do you kind of create principles, common principles, and work together to end conflicts and so forth. And with the philosophy of America first, uh, the United States doesn't really care about creating alliances to work with others to make everybody safer. And so that's a kind of much broader, more philosophical look at it. And the third part of this is that President Erdogan of Turkey has gamed President Trump very well. He likes to call him on weekends on his cell phone. And in December, when President Trump made that first decision that he wanted to get out of Syria, uh, it was a call on a weekend golf game when Trump was playing with Tiger Woods. And, you know, there's no Secretary of State, National Security Advisor on the golf course with him. And Erdogan talked him through, you know, well, we're doing well against ISIS. Why? We'll take over. You don't really need your forces there anymore. You said you wanted to bring them home during the campaign. This is the time. Even though at that point, we were still five months away from pushing back the caliphate altogether, which we did at the end of March. And the same thing happened two weekends ago. President Erdogan talked to President Trump on a weekend. And it was that decision that led him to say, okay, well, the Turks are going to invade and we're not going to stand in the way. I'm going to pull out troops. Initially, it was just 50 troops from two strategic points along that border. And yesterday, President Trump announced he was ordering all 1,000 special forces home. And they were among the most disproportionately powerful 1,000 U.S. forces in terms of their capabilities and the role they played in counterterrorism operations. Um, one of the bitter ironies of this is, you know, when we say, when we talk about the Turkish attack, we're talking about airstrikes, artillery, ground operations, a lot of it using weapons acquired from the United States and other Western countries. In other words, our Kurdish allies are now being attacked with high-grade weaponry provided by us, right? Uh, absolutely. The United States and the West and there's a, uh, the European Union has uh, just called on all European countries to cease supplying weaponry, ammunition to the Turks. This is one of the most uneven matches anywhere in the world. Turkey is the ninth most powerful military in the world. It has over 500 warplanes, uh, more than 2,000 um, tanks, uh, thousands of pieces of artillery. And they're fighting the Kurds, who have vintage rifles, a handful of captured kind of World War II era Soviet tanks who have rudimentary training. Many of them have other jobs to kind of support themselves. It's astounding how little they have to fight at all. And that was true because the U.S. actually didn't give them equipment to fight the war against ISIS, and and they won. Um, mercifully, ISIS didn't have an air uh, Air Force either. But the Turks have used their artillery and particularly their air power in destroying uh, Kurdish positions. 
You know, um, Robin Wright, military interventions are an odd kind of thing, particularly in terms of how they're perceived and processed here on the domestic front. And often, you know, numbers don't mean that much. Ideas don't mean that much. But sometimes images and individual images mean a lot. We certainly saw that in the case of the Vietnam conflict. Of late, uh, the the dead body and the face uh, of a Syrian Kurdish politician, I may say your name wrong, you'll have to help me out here, Hevrin Khalif, one of the civilians who appears to have been attacked and and executed uh, over the course of these last few days uh, of military operations, and her face is all over Twitter all of a sudden too. And and I'm wondering, you know, maybe maybe those kinds of stories, stories that really involve a human face, an identifiable person, and and a civilian as opposed to a fighter. I'm wondering, you know, whether those kinds of things make a difference in the way we understand what's happening in a place like North. Syria. Well, there's always a human dimension to war, and to understand it, those images uh, certainly do sink in. I, what struck me the most in the Sunday talk shows was that the Defense Secretary, Mark mm-hmm. Esper, acknowledged that the Turks and the, the militia they have mobilized to kind of go in and do their dirty work mm-hmm. uh, have engaged in war crimes. We're talking in a week. And there are some of the militiamen that the Turks have mobilized have gone in and actually filmed the executions, summary executions of captives they have found, uh, pulling the Kurds to the side of the road and pulling out a rifle and executing them. And they've put those on social media. You know, this is outrageous behavior, and and Turkey is a NATO member. One of the things that the rippling repercussions of this have only begun to play out. NATO is not just an important ally. It is the eastern flank of NATO. Beyond Turkey, you get into a lot of unstable, unsavory um, countries that are not aligned with the United States. But Turkey also provides the second largest number of troops to the NATO alliance. This is the world's largest military alliance. And one of the questions is, what happens? Is there a move to suspend Turkey from NATO? Not necessarily kick it out, but suspend it, for example, until it withdraws or until it, you know, uh, does something else to warrant being a member again. How does this play out worldwide? Um, How does that weaken our alliance that we use to face down a lot of the threats, including Russia down the road? And then again, how does this all strengthen Russia, Uh, which was the force that Vladimir Putin negotiated for three days with the Kurds? as the U.S. decided to withdraw, and he's the one that brokered the deal with the Syrian regime so that the Kurds now have to turn to their nemesis, President Assad, to provide them protection against Turkey. I mean, it's just it's a redrawing of the strategic map in the Middle East in ways that have repercussions for, for you in Connecticut. Right. And speaking of Connecticut, this is a point that one of our two U.S. senators, Chris Murphy, has made that when NATO is weakened, when NATO is divided, you know, at the end of the day, Russia is probably pretty happy about that, too. There's a way in which, as you're suggesting right now, although Russia may be unhappy about certain specifics of this moment, uh, it's a win for them, I assume, if NATO becomes dysfunctional. Russia's the winner out of all of this, and the United States is the loser. We have not only that, but think about countries or groups like the Kurds who have ever thought about allying with us on any strategic threat. You know, we use them, and then we abuse them. 
uh, or abandon them. And American credibility is a real issue here. The the general Maslum, who heads the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurdish, is Kurdish-led, but there are a lot of Arabs who, who have joined in, um, in part to free Arab areas from ISIS. And I talked to him a week ago today uh, as this was beginning to unfold. And he said, it's not just our future that's at stake. It's the credibility of the United States of America, its mission, its values, and its institutions. And that's a, a, a pretty sobering thought. Right. And on that sobering note, well, I'm going to let you go. I know you've got a busy day. Robin Wright, correspondent for The New Yorker and the author of seven books on the Mideast, most recently, Rock the Kasbah, Rage and Rebellion Across the Islamic uh, World. Uh, if you're trying to understand this, I would highly recommend Robin Wright's coverage in The New Yorker. Just get on the website and, and read the articles. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye. I'd like to say a few words defense of our country Those people aren't bad nor are they mean Now the leaders we have while they're the worst that we've had are hardly the worst this poor world has seen Hey, it's Kion Wolf here with Betsy Kaplan taking a second out of your podcast. I know you thought you were totally off the hook from listening to the live fundraising, but we just want to take a second to say thanks for tuning in. And also, please help us keep this coming into your podcast feed. The number to call to be a member or renew your membership is 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. And you have lots of advantages listening to the show on podcast because we're only going to speak to you for about 20 <laughs> seconds, maybe 50 seconds mm-hmm. on like five minutes. So reward us with the fact that we're speaking to you less time. We're taking less time out of your enjoyment of this great show that you're listening to. Give us some support to keep these shows going, no matter how you listen to them. 1-800-584-2788 or go online at WNPR.org. I'm back. I think I'm back. This, this is a Radio Lab Q pickup. I think I'm back. Uh, All right. So here's the plan. The plan involves you. Uh, The plan is that I'm not going to have a guest here in this segment. From from here to the end of the show, uh, I'm not going to have a guest. I'm going to instead give you the phone number, and I'm going to ask you to do a specific thing. Although, judging from prior experiences, only about half of you will do the specific thing, but that's okay, too. So I'm going to ask you, I'm a big fan of the work of this guy, Philip Tetford, uh, and he's analyzed how people forecast things. And one of the things that he's discovered is that people like me, who, you know, journalists who are analysts, who get to be pundits, I'm not really sure exactly how the whole taxonomy works, but let's just say I'm all of those things, that we're not necessarily good at predicting things and forecasting future events, even events that we know quite a bit about. Um, and that also we are never punished for being bad. The example I think that he usually gives is Bill Crystal, who is, you know, a fine person and stuff like that. But he's always predicting things. He always gets them wrong. There are these highlight reels, if that's the right term, of Bill Crystal getting stuff wrong, saying stuff that just doesn't happen. Ultimately, he's not getting stuff wrong. He's predicting things that don't happen. And that when people like us do this, we're never punished for it. And we're never really evaluated on whether we're good at it or not. And he discovered that just out in the general citizenry, there were people who were really good at it. He called them super forecasters. Um, so 
I'm going to ask you to predict. Obviously, we have this very problematic, complex situation right now with lots of moving parts. Uh, this impeachment inquiry uh, that seems to have a lot of other variables flowing into it. Um, so I'm going to ask you to predict like the next six months of American history, at least this part of it anyway. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? Where are we going to be three, four, five months down the road? Uh, the number is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-WNPR. So a lot of things could happen, right? The, uh, I mean, one thing that could happen is the always popular nothing. Nothing could happen. I think that's unlikely at this point. Uh, more, un- more likely, I would assume, would be the House of Representatives voting to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, so do you think that's going to happen? How soon do you think that's going to happen? It's hard to know the how soon part without having a lot more information in front of you. Um, the n- next thing that could happen would be um, a Senate trial at which President Trump is convicted. That seems vastly less likely to happen uh, for a whole range of different reasons. But other things could happen, too. He could resign rather than face all of this. Um, so I'm interested. I'd I just like to know, like, if you think, I mean, part of this is because I was standing in my house minding my own business two days ago, and Bill Curry called me up, and he had two questions. One of them was, should he go see Joker? the movie Joker, and which I was able to answer. And then the other question was, what did I think was going to happen? And I realized I didn't know what's going to happen. Like, I, don't, I personally don't know the answer to the question that I'm asking. Uh, but maybe you do. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-WNPR. I will say, just to give you a little bit of local historical context for this, in the case of the estimable Governor John Rowland, It's important to remember what happened, which was that there was a federal investigation of him for crimes committed. And then eventually there was the convening of a House Select Committee, a select committee of the legislature, to take sworn testimony uh, prefatory to a possible impeachment vote. So, um, So there was this committee and they were taking sworn testimony. Now, the way that things kind of worked out, they subpoenaed both John Rowland and his wife, Patricia. Uh, They fought the subpoena. It was fast-tracked to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court refused to give the Rowlands any relief about testifying. So rather than testify before the Select Committee on Impeachment, Rowland resigned, and then he was subsequently he pled guilty and was sentenced to federal charges. But that's kind of separate, right? And I mean, that may be somewhere in Donald Trump's future, too. Uh, I didn't mention that part. But like ultimately, probably once he's out of office, uh, he may face other kinds of federal charges. And by the way, that's one of the reasons, and we have a lot of calls here, so we're going to get to them in just a second. But let me just finish this thought. That's one of the reasons, and I've watched this a few times up pretty close, People who are facing impeachment, people who are facing possible forced uh, resignation due to pending charges against them, they they rarely resign until the absolute last minute. And the reason is their resignation becomes the only thing they they have left to bargain with. And that's true in two different senses. One of them is that, obviously, yes, you can trade your resignation for something, for some kind of other leniency if you're facing uh, charges in in criminal court. Um, 
and and that does i mean it probably shouldn't happen and probably shouldn't even be leverageable that way but it does happen but the other thing is you have more power to affect your own destiny until you resign and we've already seen instances in which it appears that Donald Trump would use the power of his office to perhaps affect his his own destiny or the destiny of his close associates so you have a lot more power you know obviously if you control a justice department for example um, you have more power so that's another reason people don't resign in that situation all right let's go to the phones now um, and I see a whole lot of calls in here uh, by the way we encourage women to call in women are very good at predicting things I don't know if that's a scientific fact, but I, I'm just going to say it anyway. 888-720-WNPR from the wilds of Harwinton. It's Bill. Hi, Bill. You're on the air. But you don't know you're on the air. All right. We'll try somebody else. Okay, Bill, gather your wits. I'm going to go back to you one more time, but we'll see. Uh, Philip from New Haven. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, hello. Um, thanks for taking my call. No problem. I predict that uh, Congress is going to impeach uh, Donald Trump. And I also think that the Senate is not going to do their job and they will not convict. If, if it comes to that, they will not convict. But I'm, I'm going to go on further and say that eventually we're going to find out a lot of other things. It seems like every move that Donald Trump makes, he's playing right into the hands of uh, Putin and I'm not sure if he's doing it on purpose or not, but it just seems like he likes oligarchs or uh, strong men. Yes. And I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't think that there's really malice on his part because I think that Donald Trump, because he is the president, he thinks that he cannot do anything wrong. He thinks that because he's the president, he has to be right. And he really does think that he's right. I'll take, uh, I'll listen off air. All right. I, I, I think much of your analysis is persuasive. I mean, I, I want to take a few more calls before I weigh in too much. But um, I, it, it seems clear that, for example, in the Southern District of New York, there are actually a whole series of actions pending. Um, that some of which are directed at President Trump and some of which are directed at persons closely related to Donald Trump or persons closely related to Rudy Giuliani, who's closely related to Donald Trump, and that some of these things will eventually, uh, uh, un- some of these pursuits will, as Philip suggested, uncover new information. But it might take a while and it might not matter as much until he's out of office. We will see. Um, I hope I'm saying this name right. Kaza, is that how you say your name? Yeah, that's me. All right. You're, well, you're on the air. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. I, um, I guess how my prediction goes is that, unfortunately, I just feel like there might be just some sadness on the horizon and some uh, darker times to come where we just kind of uh, see these play out in the most unfortunate ways. But hopefully, where my heart lies, is that'll inspire people to get out there and, and get the message and education out there for for um, it not to happen again. So I kind of, you know, think that maybe some, like I said, some, some bad things might happen, but some good could come from them if, if we do our part to, to get the information out there. This sounds almost like a psychic prediction. Uh, Ooh, it might be. Yeah, it might be. So when you say sadness, bad, bad things happening, you're talking about impeachment? Or are you talking about the resistance yes. to impeachment? So or I think that perhaps, like, in my opinion, I think that we just, uh, for me, I'm very um, liberal, and I would like to see our president impeached and uh, out of office, 
but I don't think that the rest of America really understands a lot of the things that are going on surrounding it. And I think that that comes from, uh, you know, we do a lot of wars on, on Facebook, but we don't do a lot of the, uh, you know, knocking on doors, standing on sidewalks and, and you know, more education in, in faith and in person. And I, I'd like to see that. And I think that would turn it around for us. All right. Uh, well, uh, great prediction. A little gauzy. But, but still a solid prediction. Uh, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. If you're not into the alpha part of alphanumeric, uh, 888-720-9677. So let me take one or two more calls. I have to take another like really quick little, you know, just a few seconds of a break coming up here fairly soon. But let's get a few more uh, predictions out here so that we can begin doing a, a rigorous data analysis. Uh, here's uh, Chris in New Haven. Hi, Chris. Hi, Colin. Um, so my prediction uh, is regarding the president that at the end of the day, I think while he's still in office, we're not going to see him impeached. I mean, maybe the House will bring charges against him, but at the end of the day, I really just don't think that there's the momentum behind it, uh, especially from the American people, because I know a lot of people who see this as just the Democrats grasping at uh, straws. You know, they're just trying to do everything and anything, and it's just too little, too late at this point. And um, a lot of people think that we should focus on the election, uh, on getting him out of office in a more um, controlled fashion, I suppose, uh, if that's one way to put it. But I do think that once he's out of office, um, whether it be in one year or even four more years, we will see uh, some level of charges brought against him after he's kind of left that, that level of immunity that he has right now. All right. Well, Chris, thanks for your call. I, I would just simply say, just to, so we're all clear about this, the term impeachment refers to the House uh, voting affirmatively on articles of impeachment. So, for example, Bill Clinton was impeached. He was not convicted in the Senate. Um, so when we say, will Donald Trump be impeached, we're talking about something that the House of Representatives can and would do on its own. The question of conviction, which would require 67 votes in the Senate, uh, 67 votes, which would be fairly difficult to get. I mean, you can maybe see eight Republicans who might be willing to join the Democrats, but you can't see 20, which is what you'd need, um, without some huge swing in sentiment. And we should say that, you know, even though the previous two callers have kind of expressed the idea that Americans kind of don't get this, increasingly they get something, they understand something. The, the polling on impeach impeachment now is around 50-40, um, 50 being in favor of impeachment. So, um, you know, the the latest round, the last three weeks of events have dramatically changed public opinion about this question. I'll tell you what. Oh, no, here's Bill from Harwinton. So we'll take Bill and then we'll go to break. I think that's a good plan. Uh, here's Bill in Harwinton. He, he, I tried and missed before. But it was because the, the dried tassels of corn that are just flying around the streets of rural Harwinton may have actually jammed our telecommunication lines. That's the theory I have. Bill, you've got the floor. Thanks, Colin. And it's the fact that I'm driving to Bradley. I had my call drop in one of those dead cell zones. Oh, no. Sorry about that. That's so okay. My prediction is that Trump promises not to run again in return for the impeachment proceedings to be dropped. Hmm. Now, I have a scenario beyond that that um, he still gets 10 percent of the write-in vote because he's got that loyal base, which enables the Democrats to win the election. And then 24 hours before the new president is sworn in, he secretly resigns, Pence pardons him from all 
crimes while he was president or before while he was running, and that's the end of my prediction. Bill, that's what I call a freaking prediction. I mean, you got details there. You got a political novel. You just need to like sit down and, and flesh it out a little bit. But that's pretty good. Wow. I'm just going to go over that again make sure I got it all. So the, the first thing he does is he agrees not to seek a second term uh, in return for the impeachment process being uh, dropped entirely. So that's step right. one. Step two as a result of his efforts or not, he gets 10% of the right-in vote. That probably helps the Democrats win the election. And then what happened? Oh, then he resigns before the end of his term and Pence pardons him. That's really good. I even have a prediction of who's going to be the Republican nominee as a result of this. If Who, you want to hear that, Bill. Yeah, I want to hear it all, Bill. I, you have my total attention now. Paul Ryan and Nikki Haley is his vice president. <laughs> you've got a, I swear to God, you've got something here. I don't know if any of what you just said is true, but it's really interesting. You should, uh, I don't know, write a, write, a, write, a, yeah, write a quickie political novel, self-publish it. Um, I, I guarantee you, you'll get eyeballs. All right, let's take a quick break here. This is very short. If you want to call in, be part of this conversation. The number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. We will have time after this very short break. From Now? Now? See, I refuse to pick up my cues in, in an elegant or in any way professional manner. Uh, all right, so we're back. We have, a, you know, we have a few minutes left here. We can get a few more calls on the air if I will stop blathering. Let's start with Patricia in Greenwich. Hi, Patricia. You're on the air. Oh, hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I would like to say that uh, I feel very strongly that um, Trump will be impeached for two reasons. One, because I won't allow myself to be cynical. And two, and I think he is guilty, and he's unfit to be president. And uh, the other reason is I think our Constitution is very strong, and that the senators and, well, the House of Representatives and the senators will stand behind the uh, Constitution, which well, is breaking. Yeah. But the other thing I wanted to say is a lot of people, including Joe Biden, seem to think it's funny to say, Everybody thought it was funny that when Trump said he would he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and get away with it. That is not funny. It's not. It wasn't funny then. It's not funny now. And I hear people laughing. They laugh at that. They laugh at other things. That's not funny. Well, I don't know if you've seen the story about the video that was uh, shown at this uh, conference of Trump supporters uh, at one of his resorts. I did. It's really it's terrifying. It's one of the most terrifying things I've seen in the last three years. And there's been a lot of scary stuff. I know. So, that yeah. So, so I, I'm, I'm with you. I want to say one more thing about what Patricia said, too. And then we'll get to another few calls, which is because this this has come up a few times. And I think I might have said it last week, but it's worth saying again. You'll hear people who are opposed to impeachment refer to it as a coup or a coup d'etat. And that's exactly what it isn't. Right. I mean, one of the reasons we have the Constitution that we have just to 
uh, button onto what uh, Patricia just said, is so that we won't have coup d'etats. A coup d'etat is a sudden, usually violent, forceful removal uh, of, of political leadership. Well, we don't do that. Uh, and nothing is sudden. There's a deliberative process. It has rules. You have to follow the rules. If you don't get the votes that are required in the Senate, it, there is no conviction and the person stays in office. These are all things that are antithetical to the notion of a coup d'etat. So when people say this is a coup, and one of the per- people who will say it is the president. It's not. It's the opposite of a coup. It's what we do so we don't have coups. And, and it's important. It's important to understand that. Uh, all right. So I'm going to go down the line here, see how many people I can get to. Here's Tim in Riverhead, New York. Hi, Tim. Hi. It's good to be on. Uh, I agree with Patricia in the sense that uh, we have to uh, wait till all the facts come out. And I think uh, it'll be evident to everyone that uh, Donald is in it for himself and he's done everything he can. If they don't impeach him for uh, what he did in, on the phone call, they'll impeach him for obstruction at this point. Um, well, yeah. But I also want to, I also have a more dire prediction. And that is if this Kurdish incursion, I mean, the uh, Turkish incursion into uh, Syria gets worse, it's only a couple of shots away from an all-out conflict. Hopefully, all our people get out of there safe. If they don't, I think it will only suit Donald Trump's presidency for a water breakout. And uh, I know that sounds probably on the far end, but from what I've seen of Donald Trump so far, I could easily believe that to save his presidency, he would go that far. Right. I don't think that's going to happen. I I think his goal is to get Americans out of there. And he doesn't care what happens to anybody else. And what happens to anybody else is already quite horrifying. All right, Eric from Massachusetts, you're the last call of the day. So land the plane. Well, uh, I agree with a lot of my fellow people here. Um, so I'm originally from New York. And in our opinion, or my humble opinion, Trump is a punk. Mm. And I think that punks basically blow a lot of smoke and don't accomplish anything besides taking care of themselves. But I think currently, um, he is. Uh, I think that the uh, Republicans are going to determine that he is unfit for office based on this decision to pull our troops out and set the Kurds up for uh, what is currently a slaughter. And and I, it seems to me, and it's a clear payback for the tower that is uh, in Turkey right now. I mean, why doesn't that ever come up in discussion? Um, I hope that he'll be impeached. I also feel really sick to my stomach that our servicemen who serve with the Kurds are probably really upset that their partners who become friends are now being slaughtered um, with our own weapons. So this whole thing is a complete, disgusting... um, I, I'm, I'm actually without words. Yes, well, you, you, your words have been good, Eric, and you have landed the plane. It's actually a sort of a dual towers in Istanbul. It's a double tower. But yes, they, Trump, uh, they licensed the Trump name. He and his family got a lot of money out of that. Turkish-related businesses, government-connected businesses, also doing a lot of business with other Trump hotels. So money is never very far from the conversation. Thanks for being part of the conversation. Here come some very nice people to ask you to support this radio show by pledging right now. Please do it. 
Hey, this is Kyone Wolf. I'm here with Betsy Kaplan in your podcast feed saying thanks for tuning in, first of all. And please keep this podcast going by calling 1-800-584-2788 or by going to wnpr.org slash donate. That's the place where you become a member or you renew your membership. And most importantly, you keep us going. And we can't do this without you. Kyone and I, along with the, the rest of our team, put on the Colin McEnroe Show every day of the week for you because we love to do this for you and we love the show as well. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at wnpr.org. Enjoy the show.